Votes are being counted in Russia after three days of polling in its parliamentary elections. Few critics of the Kremlin were allowed to run, with supporters of the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny among those affected. As expected, exit polls are predicting a win for President Putin's United Russia party. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Kremlin File. That's KremlinFile.com. Olga, my partner in crime. Russia held their legislative elections this weekend uh, that began on Friday and did yesterday. And I mean, the thing was a circus show. These were for the Duma elections. Duma, and it was also regional. Right. There's something different about a Russian election. Polling stations turn into music halls. Buses turn into polling stations. We found this one parked just outside Moscow. We asked, why in a bus? He couldn't explain. I know that you were probably up, what, four, five, six o'clock in the morning going through everything. I have a blood oh, clot in my eye from monitoring these elections. It looks like a regular election. There are voters and there are parties to vote for. But most opposition politicians and activists, in other words, the Kremlin's most vocal critics, are barred from the ballot. Like, I've never seen so many videos coming out and yeah. getting so many yeah. text messages of yeah. fraudulent activity. At their Moscow call center, independent vote monitor Golis says it's been made aware of more than 4,000 possible instances of fraud in this election. Last year, for a whole week, for Putin's amendment to make him, you know, dictator mm -hmm. for life, yeah, yeah, um, the constitutional it was 1,700. Uh, wow. violations. So, wow. I mean, we're talking about double the violations. If you talk about standards, some European standards that uh, was uh, signed by Russia too, uh, Russian elections are not free and fair uh, when we compare it with these standards. It was incredible. It was, I mean, ballot yeah. stuffing. And talking of ballots, at polling station 475, a hooded woman is caught on camera, apparently stuffing ballot boxes. She finishes one one pile, and then out comes another, and it goes on and on. They didn't even change I mean, their clothes. They have no. videos. No, they're just, you know, bust from polling station and to polling station. And here, someone's using a mop to cover up CCTV, but they forgot about the other camera that caught them pushing up the handle. Boris Vishnevsky wants um, the polling stations in St. Petersburg without video recorders, the results to be thrown out. Russia's state election commission concedes there have been some issues at some polling stations and says it's taken appropriate action. Because he's filing uh, election violations. Yep. Earlier today, he got called outside. They beat him up, wouldn't let him back in the building. Another one... In Rostov, he requested cameras for his polling station. He was given a cup of coffee and got poisoned. He fell ill right there, oh, got taken out. One. They evacuated oh the, the polling station. And then he got taken to the hospital. And, of course, the cup with the coffee disappeared. They washed it out, cleared all the evidence. And I'm like, this is a first. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. they poison people, but not insta-poisoning. As for the result, no real surprise. The Kremlin's party on course to win the race that was run according to the Kremlin's rules. Yeah, this election was a sham, but we know, right, that that's nothing new in Putin's Russia. Not only have we seen Putin rig his own elections countless times, 
We've seen him do it also in other countries. They rigged the election in Ukraine mm-hmm. for a pro-Kremlin okay, candidate, Viktor Yanukovych. And that sparked heavy, heavy-duty protests, which exposed all of this kind of fraudulent uh, election tactics to the whole world. But the most recent example that we've seen, of course, is in the Belarusian election. And that was Another August sham. of 2020. On election day, his security forces were taking no chances. These three pinned to the ground are Russian journalists. The internet's been blocked all day, too. This video getting out from a polling station. Officials insist she's not making off with any ballot papers. She just got stuck in a room. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya never expected to win at the ballot box, but she and her supporters have always vowed to defend their votes on the streets. And tonight, those protests have already begun. Explosions rocking the Belarusian capital a few hours after polls have closed. Riot police is blocking the entrance to a large square and is firing stun grenades into the crowd. Police uh, threw the grenade into the crowd and the leg of man was broken into two parts. A police truck drives into protesters. torture, in detention, beatings, women being forced to strip, some of these protesters actually being paraded on state TV. Now, Lukashenko still claims that he won the election, getting about 80% of the vote. And he, at this point in time, doesn't show any signs of wanting to step down. In fact, he had a big phone call with Vladimir Putin. Outside the plant was Maria Kolesnikova, pretty much the only opposition leader who hasn't been arrested or fled the country. For 26 years, the authorities have humiliated us. Just this week, an opposition leader was sentenced by the state to 11 years in prison. Thank you for not being afraid. Now, what we've just seen are just harrowing, horrific scenes of protesters. They were brutalized. And after this election played out, on the world stage, like all things that Putin touches, okay, the disinformation, the chaos that's rampant in the coverage, okay, of Belarus. Today, we're going to get the full story from someone who was on the ground fighting with the resistance. So let's welcome Tadeusz Jixson, Belarusian journalist, PhD researcher, and a non-resident fellow with SIPA. Welcome, welcome today to Kremlin File. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm very well. How about you? <laughs> very well, very well. And Olga's here. Hi, Tadeusz. Thank you. Hello, Olga. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. We're going to be talking about Belarus and the battle that's been going on there. It was absolutely incredible for us to see the spirit and participation of so many people of civic society and the protests that were going on. What happened in 2011, the huge economic crisis happened in Belarus and Belarus has never fully recovered. There was no way out really because the authorities, they couldn't come up with anything, any new way of thinking. And then perhaps you remember in 2017, authorities introduced this anti-social parasite tax, which essentially meant that if you are unemployed, you need to pay tax for being unemployed. You need to pay the country. Yes. Get out. Really? (laughs) Yes. It's a very unique thing. Unprecedented, really. And uh, even Belarusians who are famous for being high-tempered, even they decided that uh, enough is enough. 
So it was the first major sign that something's going on. Then coronavirus came, which was the first major trigger, and especially the way Lukashenko and Belarusian authorities handled it, or rather mishandled it. Because you remember that Lukashenko denied that the virus existed, that the best treatment, the best cure is just drink vodka in sauna, mm-hmm. ride your tractor if you have one, and, 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 and you'll be fine. Obviously, people were outraged about that. And this caused unprecedented self-organization in Belarus. Lots of crowdfunding platforms were created. Today, you think that's why Lukashenko lost control of this election in a way he hasn't, let's say, in the past? Or were there just better candidates? I would say it was the first major blow to the regime. The first major trigger was the decision of Viktor Babariko, the CEO of Belgesprom Bank, to run in the election. Because in the previous presidential election, the representatives of the opposition candidates, in general, none of them was particularly popular. But with Babariko, the situation was totally different. He was genuinely popular within Belarusians because even though he was a CEO of Russia's Gazprom Bank, the branch of Russia's Gazprom Bank in Belarus, he was a very generous founder of lots of pro-Belarusian initiatives. He created a collection of Belarusian art he bought from Western auctions and returned to Belarus. He was quite vocal in terms of he was given lots of interviews. He was quite outspoken in general and generally popular. And his decision to run for presidency it awakened Belarus. Belarusians had suddenly believed that, you know, the change is possible. And uh, the, the the way he, he handled his campaign it was something unprecedented in the country. And it was also the synergy of his campaign and the campaign of two other people, the husband of Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, who was a generally very, very popular political blogger and whose targeted audience was, again, those people from rural areas, small towns. Then it was Babarika whose target most mainly like educated, young educated middle-class urban population. And then it was also the former ambassador to the U.S., Valery Zipkala, who also decided to, to run in the election. And all three, they have awakened Belarus. Belarusians, have, all of a sudden, they believe that the change is, is actually possible. And all sorts of activities started on the ground. But then, obviously, the authorities, they realized that it's a major threat. So they've imprisoned they've imprisoned Zikhanovsky. Zipkala had to flee the country even before he was registered as a candidate. So as a result, the only person who was registered, who was somehow connected to the opposition, was Vitana Tikhanovsky, because she had no people behind her after all of her husband's team was arrested and dispersed. So the authorities said that they probably thought uh, that she wouldn't be a, a major threat. So they decided, oh, let's let her run. Let's have some fun. Yeah, Lukashenko even said back then that women cannot run for president. Women are a different breed. Wow. She wouldn't mm-hmm. do. She's not going to do well harm anyway, yes. And it was another major mistake because what happened next is the offices of Babarika, of uh, Tsipkala, of all other candidates, they united. Mm -hmm. And perhaps you remember this famous picture with these three ladies standing, showing these signs like victory, love, fight, struggle and and victory. It's very famous. Yeah. And again, the campaign they created was absolutely out of this world for Belarus. They traveled all the country. They've been to even the most remote corners of Belarus. And even in villages, they've attracted hundreds to their rallies. And again, Belarusians genuinely believed that the change is possible. And they've every, everyone, everyone, they went on the 9th of August to vote on the election day with white ribbons on their hands. And 
there was a decision because some of the urns are transparent, not all of them, but some of them, to before you vote, before you put your ballot in the ballot box, you need to fold it like a harmonica and put it. And there are pictures from lots of ballot stations uh, where literally like 90% of, of ballots are look this way. But then what happened on the evening when local election committees were supposed to announce the preliminary results, just to put it on the door of the polling station, uh, some of them refused. Some of them decided to count fairly. And on some stations, they received 80, some, on some of them even 90% of vote. Wow. And on those polling stations where the commissions refused to announce the results, people have gathered and actually started protesting. It was First, it was local protests around, around local polling stations. Right. Police arrived, SWAT teams arrived to escort the members of polling commissions, of polling stations home because people were absolutely furious. Mm -hmm. And then, I think it was 9 p.m. in the evening, the authorities, Yermosh, Lydia Yermoshina, the head of the election commission, she announced that Lukashenko received 80-something percent of, of vote. According to a government-sponsored exit poll, Lukashenko won 80 percent of the vote against four rivals, avoiding a runoff vote. Demonstrators and the main opposition candidate in the election have rejected official results, calling the election blatantly rigged. And uh, that was the main trigger, because wow. if they would come up with something more like plausible, I don't know, like 55%, 60%, people would probably say, Maybe it's possible, yeah. but yeah. nobody really believed. I've been spoken to to officials, person officials who are still like in, in the regime. They admitted, okay, I, we admit he didn't get 80%, but he still won. So please, come on, calm down, be reasonable. And that's what triggered major protests. And uh, you remember what happened next, all these images of brutal police crackdown, where army was used, where people were shot, yeah. where there were actual casualties. Yeah. yeah. Now, during that time as well, the internet was down for the first three days. Am I mistaken in that? Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. So how did people actually organize Tadeusz? Like what role did the platforms, you know, Telegram and all of that? Can you explain that? And also Nexta, for example, what role did they have in that? The only combination that actually allowed people to access internet was the combination of Siphon VPN app and Telegram Messenger app. All other platforms, obviously there was no visual internet, like browser internet. It was impossible to connect to internet, to connect to the outer world. But somehow it was still possible to connect to Telegram Messenger, especially if you have this, if you had this one particular VPN program installed. Also, Pavel Durov, the founder of Telegram, he changed some settings. He announced on the very first day that he changed some settings to allow Belarusians to, to bypass this blockade. And back then, I think the most popular t Telegram channel that most of Belarusians knew, were aware of, was Nexta. Actually, it's pronounced Nechta. Nechta. means someone okay. in Belarusians, but the way it's spelled, it's people in the West call, call it Nexta. So let's stick with Nexta. Yeah. And uh, overnight... I think some two, some 2 million people followed it, subscribed to this channel to see the updates. And the only way to self-organize was to send your messages to the bot, to next messenger bot, like where, where you are, where are the people, where are the police, what's going on, what's going on in your area. And Nexta was, was verifying some of these messages and posting them. Like every minute, a few messages were posted. Wow. So I, I think on the during these three days, uh, Nexta's teams posted some a few thousand messages, maybe 
over 10,000. So it became this major tool to coordinate people on the ground. Sure. And it also decided, not just Nexus team, but a group of admins of major Belarusian Telegram channels, they've decided where to go, where to where together. Let's gather at Stella in, in Minsk city center, and then let's move on to Pushkinskaya metro station. And not all people have t- Telegram, and even those who had Telegram, they, some most of them couldn't access it. But still, there were some 10, 15, maybe 20 percent of people in the on the protesters who could access it, and they were like leading the crowd, what to do, where to go. Yes, it is true to say that the Belarusian revolution, those three days and those months that followed, all these rallies were organized by Telegram, Belarusian Telegram community. Yeah, that's amazing. Because it was the only option, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this is such an important tool, right, for a lot of areas where in those societies where they really don't have the right of protest, the right of no freedom of speech. It's the same in Russia. Like I was following the Russian protest and it's like, okay, meet us on this corner. Okay, me and the which is like police are on their way to here, move this way. And it was just crazy how live, like second by second, they were just like directing which way to go, what to do. Yeah, that's yeah. actually, that's exactly how it worked. I also followed this after Zach Live during the January protest when Navalny returned to Russia. But again, the scale is totally different. In Russia, those channels have 50,000 subscribers, 100,000 subscribers. In Belarus, it's in total, mm-hmm. on top yeah. of Nexta, it's three to four million. Yes. Wow. So I was following the protest in Belarus very closely and so proud. I mean, it, it reminded me of Maidan in Ukraine. And I was like, oh, yes, come on, we could do this. And at the same time, I was also monitoring what Russia was doing. And at the time, I remember seeing a few flights of FSB officials, which is Russia's security service flying in. And also, I remember the Russians coming in and taking over state media or assisting to take over state media. Basically, what was Russia's role overall in the protest? I'll probably start with Russia's media because it's actually interesting fact for the first week that followed the election night, Russia's media were actually unbiased. Mm. The Russian Today, Ria Novosti, TASS, Sputnik, they've presented both sides and they were pretty critical to Lukashenko's action and the brutality with which cracked down on the protest. But then after six or seven days, it, it was very noticeable because it changed. It happened literally overnight. Even Belarusian state journalists, Lukashenko's propagandists that worked for the regime for some of them, even for decades, even they went on strike because the brutality was so horrible, even they couldn't stand it. So the Lukashenko decided to replace them with Russians. And it uh, kind of corresponds with the first FSB plane, which landed in Minsk. I think it was 18th of, uh, of August. Mm-hmm. Some of our people, they've actually tr- tracked it all the way down to one of Lukashenko's residence. Do you know what happened with, at those meetings? In the details probably of this transaction, they decided to send a number of Russian journalists to Belarus, like dozens of journalists that occupy technical positions, editors, sound engineers, cameramen. It was when Russia's attitude changed and all of a sudden Russia decided to firmly support Lukashenko. The narrative changed 180 degrees. And what was the narrative? They started supporting Lukashenko and mm-hmm. called protesters from Western, being paid by the CIA, this usual Russia's usual stuff. I even remember the instances when on Belarusian TV, on in, in the news blogs, because Belarusian TV is Russian, is in Russian, Belarusian state TV. But you know, there is a, there are some words that would, that would distinguish Belarusian Russian of Russian Russian. And the major one is uh, the, the name of the country, 
country because Belarusians, all, all of Belarusians, they say Belarus, while Russians say Belarusia. Yeah. And even on Belarusian state TV, all of a sudden they start to, to call Belarus Belarusia. In Russia, there were reports the National Guard were coming in to assist Lukashenko. Did they physically attack Belarusians? And can you tell us how much of it was true? In terms of media support, it was obviously very bold, very evident. But there were also reports of Russian troops being seen in uh, Belarus on the election night. Uh, mm-hmm. Allegedly, they were they were taking part in dispersing protesters, things like that. It is 99% it is false. There were two cases. The first of them is that one of Belarusian special forces uniform, they had these special patches that would distinguish one unit of, of another. And they had three stripes of different colors on their helmets. One of them looked almost identically like Russian flag. So many people believe that they saw people with soldiers with Russian flags on their helmets, but it was just one of Belarusian units with, with this insignia very similar to Russia's. And the second case was in Brest, in the southwestern city of Belarus on the border with Poland and Ukraine, where people also reported soldiers with Russian flags and even took pictures of, of soldiers with Russian flags. Yeah. But it turned out they were Serbians, actually. But those Serbian soldiers, they didn't take they didn't take part in protests. It was just a coincidence because that week, a small platoon of Serbian soldiers took part in some exercises in Brest, along with some other countries. And they were also seen in the city and lots of people mistaken them for Russians, but it was, again, just a coincidence. So Russians didn't take part in dispersing protests in Belarus, but at the same time, Lukashenko and Putin openly announced, I think it was some two weeks after the election, that a special unit of Rosgvardia was formed and placed on the Belarusian border, just in case the situation gets out of Lukashenko. Control. Interesting. It wasn't used, but there were images, there were videos of, of this unit being deployed to the border with Belarus and being, well, redeployed back when the situation calmed down. Let's put it this way. So it seems like Putin was genuinely ready to send his troops to Belarus and God knows what would happen then. Yeah. And with that, Lukashenko started making very frequent visits to meet with Putin. Now, prior to re-election, I remember just over the past few years, there's a love-hate relationship between Putin and Lukashenko. One minute, you know, they tolerate each other. Then Putin, even a few years ago, I remember attempted to put pressure on Lukashenko and he kind of stood up for Belarus. But as the protests kept going, Lukashenko's trips to Russia became more frequent. And suddenly the tone was changing even from Lukashenko, where he was speaking more of, yes, we will work together and kind of like this bigger cooperation with Russia. Well, again, it was a major change right after the election, because if you remember last summer, there was this case, a very funny case with some 30 alleged Wagner mercenaries who were detained in Belarus and who were allegedly on their way to to Ukraine. They were, were supposed to be handed over to Ukraine. But then Belarus changed its stance on Russia, on, on Ukraine, and decided to just hand it over back to, to Russia. Obviously, Russia's support doesn't come free of obligations. So Lukashenko, the fact that he's still in power, it's entirely... Uh, it's that thanks to Russia, Russia's support, though he obviously had to change his stance on Russia. And given how the situation, how the relations were developing in, with the West, lots of Western politicians, Macron, Merkel, they tried to, to call him, but he didn't uh, even pick up the phone. He decided, you know, I'll stick with Putin. I'll just stick with Putin. I'll be communicating with the world through through Putin. Wow. Over the last year, I think Lukashenko has met five times with Putin. On one occasion, he, I think one of his trips was not quite a success, but rather successful when Putin agreed to give him one and a half billion dollars loan to pay back previous loans to Russia. Last year, Lukashenko hasn't traveled to anywhere but 
but to Russia. He hasn't met to any Western leader, only to only with Putin, and I think maybe with Aliyev, yeah, with Aliyev as well as Azerbaijani Aliyev. Let's see. Belarus has effectively became Russia's proxy, Russia's puppet state, and there were very popular talks before that Belarus is a Russia's puppet state, or Lukashenko is a Putin's puppet. But back then it was, well, a, you know, figure of speech. But today it is, it's pretty much true. It's real. Because there is no alternative for Belarus, for Lukashenko's regime, mm-hmm. other than Russia. He became absolutely toxic for the West. Uh, while before, wh- whenever the crisis in relations between Belarus and Russia happened, he always had a chance to start some reapproachment with the West, you know, release some political prisoners, announce some liberalization, things like that. Today, I, I think it's over table, I think everyone in the West realizes that even if he announces some something like that, you know, no, no real reapproachment is possible, yeah. There is no one else to talk to for Shinka but Putin. And on the mental level, they are somewhat similar. I think they, they just go along quite well. Because for instance, with Putin, they have this Putin has this, you know, Silavik mindset. He likes all these Lukashenko's stories about fighting uh, in, in the common trench against those corrupted, rotten, Western, CIA, gay, whatever occupants. But again, there is also a strong lobby in Russia which advocates against support of Lukashenko. It's mostly people from economic finance ministries because they don't care about what Lukashenko is saying, but they see how much does it cost for Russia to support his regime. And they also see that Russia doesn't get anything tangible in return. Yeah. How much has Russia invested into Lukashenko, say, over the past decade? Actually, that's a big mystery because it depends what you count as, as support. For instance, if you count the discounts on the oil and gas price, Belarus receives the total price of Lukashenko's support for Russia over the past 20 years amounts to over $100 billion. Wow. Yeah. In mid-2000s, I think per year it was four, five, six, seven billion dollars Yeah. Again, because of discounted oil prices. But today, I think after 2016, when oil prices started to go down, also Russia decided to to close the this valve of its financial support to Lukashenko a little bit. So in recent years, it's no more than one and a half, two billion. Mm-hmm. Still significant. It's just enough. It's just enough for the Belarusian economy to, not to collapse. But there is no way it's going to grow or restart in any way. And how do average Belarusians feel about this, about Russia's more active role inside the country now? In general, Belarusians still see Russia uh, mostly positively. The attitude to Russia is definitely better than attitude to Lukashenko, mm. because today his support base is is no larger than 30% of the population. Mm-hmm. But still, yeah, but still, still, good relations with Russia is what the absolute majority of Belarusians want. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you put the question NATO or Russia, not Russia, not being incorporated into Russia, yeah, but keep things as they are right now with Russia, the majority would still stick with Russia. Right. Yeah. I guess Belarus as well, from what you're saying, the dependence, could it turn into a state like Donbass, for example, like the region? Is that what its future holds if it keeps on going this way with so much dependence on Russia? Well, actually, that's what my latest article for SEPA is titled, The Donbassization of Belarus. And I argue that's exactly what is going to happen because any radical change the introduction of a new constitution, the constitutional reform, the actual political reform, the liberalization and release of political prisoners, or like the real incorporation into Russia. All of these radical moves would mean the end of Lukashenko's political career, because this way he will strip himself of the absolute power within the country. So the only solution, the only strategy he sees for himself is to drag on and on this situation of uncertainty. And it genuinely looks like the rule of law is 
no longer exists in Belarus. You can be you can be kidnapped in certain circumstances. You could even be killed for absolutely no reason, and there is no nothing you can do about it. Mm. No, Belarus is not even a member of the Council of Europe, so it's not under the jurisdiction of European Court of Justice or anything. Yeah, the situation in Belarus will become increasingly more similar to what's going on in Donbas. You know, a rogue failed state under under Russia's umbrella. Now, actually, you mentioned also, right, the, the absence of rule of law and also the political prisoners. Let's go back as well to what happened in May with, right, Roman Portezovich on the Ryanair flight that was going off from Athens. EU leaders meet later today to decide how to respond to the forced diversion and landing of a Ryanair plane carrying a Belarusian opposition activist. This Ryanair flight left Athens and was set to land at its final destination in Lithuania's capital, Vilnius. But just as it was about to enter Lithuanian airspace, the plane was diverted and, according to the crew, was ordered to land in Minsk due to a security threat. A threat apparently so big, this military aircraft escorted the plane to this unexpected pit stop. But when it landed, no bomb was found on board and this Belarusian passenger was taken off the flight. Roman Protasevich is a 26-year-old opposition journalist exiled in Poland. Authorities have wanted Mr. Protasevich for organizing anti-government protests last year. Tadeusz, can you tell us about what happened there? I can tell you a personal story because uh, we used to work together with Roman. He was my predecessor. Yeah. He was the editor-in-chief of Next before September 2020. Then I took over his role. Yeah. But we still worked together for two months, I guess, a month and a half. Mm-hmm. So I knew him personally. And it was May 23rd. It was Sunday when the situation with the plane happened. And I remember it was the day, the day after Eurovision and I was working on Nextus. I was covering Eurovision. So I went to bed very late. And I woke up, it was almost noon, and, I, and I'm waking up, I check out my phone and I see, I don't know, 600, 700 messages. And I'm starting to think some, something's probably going on. So I'm starting to scroll the Telegram, the Telegram feed, and I realize what's going on, what's happening. And I was just like, wow, wow. I was, yeah. my hands were literally shaking. I'm not a very sensitive man in any way, but I was genuinely shaking yeah. because Let's put it this way. When I woke up, it wasn't clear that Roman was in public. Public only knew that there was some ex- some incident with a plane, Athens Vilnius Ryanair plane, and that it probably will be landing in Minsk for some reason. But in uh, in working chats, like in close chats, it was already clear that Brother Savage was on board and that he'll be arrested any moment. And we tried to come up with something, but obviously there is nothing you can do in a situation like that. It was completely in their hands because while in uh, Belarusian airspace. So yes, we were totally shocked. I remember I started to, to write about the situation on, 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 on Twitter because it was my day off at Nexta, so I could take some time to let the the West, the world know what's going on. And I remember it attracted so much uh, attention. I was absolutely shocked once more. Yeah. It's something out of this world, really, to hijack to hijack a passenger plane, plane to divert course. I think lots of people forgot, but also the military interceptor, the fighter jet was also used just to make sure it wouldn't cross the, the airspace. It's unprecedented. It's, uh, well, a pure act of air piracy. It's That's something right. out of, I don't know, 1970s Gaddafi's things. Yeah. Yeah. And then they've arrested Roman. They've arrested his girlfriend. The, re- the remaining passengers were allowed to, to leave. 
Well, started, we started to connect dots because Roman, while he was in Athens at the airport, he said that there were some people, some dodgy looking people following him, taking pictures of him. Later, I think Vice, the news outlet Vice, they've confirmed that they, some of their sources in Greek, Greek special services, it confirmed that they were Russia's security officers, security officials. Mm. Three of them and those people have actually haven't, haven't boarded the plane in Minsk when he continued the, the flight to Vilnius. Yeah. So for the first Two or three days, it was utter shock for all of us. Then you remember the videos appeared, this, this typical video, confession videos, this Kadyrov-style confession videos of Roman appeared. A Belarusian state TV presenter introduces an allegedly voluntary interview with the jailed 26-year-old opposition blogger, which human rights groups say was filmed under psychological duress, ending the interview bursting into tears saying he hopes one day to marry and have children. Roman's father calls the interview attempted torture. I feel the deepest pain. He told fellow passengers as he left the plane before his detention that he feared he would face the death penalty. The authorities who call Mr. Protasevich an extremist claim television confessions by government opponents are done voluntarily. It was so angering and heartbreaking at the same time. A friend of mine recently, a few days ago, he made a chart of all the confessions videos posted uh, on Belarusian pro-regime social media over the last year, and it's over 700 of them. Over 700 people are sitting, beaten in front of the camera and saying, I love my president. Oh my God. That is disgusting. These hostage videos are, are just outrageous. How many political prisoners are there now, Tadeusz? Right now, there are, I think, 606 are recognized by international like civil rights organizations. But uh, the actual number is higher uh, because there is over four and a half thousand criminal cases opened against Belarusians. My God. And those of Belarusians who actually like used violence against the police, throw a Molotov cocktail or beat, uh, beat policemen in their face, they are not recognized as political prisoners, which I personally found not. So the actual number is actually higher than that. And how many have died? How many have been killed by Lukashenko's regime? It's six to seven, and because some of the deaths haven't been actually attributed to Siliviki, because some of the people have been actually found hanged on a branch of a tree somewhere in the woods. My God. Being heavily beaten. So it's obvious for everyone that they've, it was just staged their attempted suicide. A few weeks ago, an activist who'd fled to Ukraine went out for a run and was found hanged in a park. And while that has not yet been officially confirmed as a murder, come on! But again, we cannot prove it until the, the archives are opened. And there's another case too now today, the Olympic athlete. Can you explain what happened with her? Because I know that you were following that story as well. Tsimanovskaya, Tsimanovskaya. It started very, nothing indicated it could become an international story. Christina, she she recorded a video message and posted it on her Instagram, complaining that the management of Olympic team, they've mixed up some paperwork and she ended up to have running a different event. She's a sprinter and she had to run a relay. Yeah. And she just complained uh, that nobody let her know. And she was basically, she was pissed off at the Federation, nothing political. Right. It was just 40 seconds long, but some good Samaritans, they've informed Lukashenko. 
And he became furious and ordered, from what we know by from the collateral evidence, he ordered that she must be immediately brought back to the country. She must immediately leave, leave, leave Tokyo and be brought to, back to the country. Also, the recent regime media started a hate campaign against her. She, they made her, I wouldn't even, I'm not even allowed to use, you know, the words uh, they used to, to describe her. There are some very horrible words. So she, she was genuinely afraid. And uh, when the recent National Olympic Committee officials brought her to the airport, she approached Japanese policemen. She also let, let us know in the community, she let us know so that we can start inform the world about what's going on. We start at the Tokyo Olympics, but not with sporting action, rather a claim from one of the athletes that officials from her country's Olympic delegation have been trying to force her to fly home. Well, we can speak to Shadeusz Gidshan, a Belarusian journalist in Warsaw who's uh, following this story. What have you heard about where Kristina is? And out of nothing, it became another like major international story. She applied for asylum in Poland and uh, decided not to return because she was afraid for her safety, not for the fact that she would be kicked out of the national team because it was pretty certain, but she was afraid she would up in prison. And it makes absolutely no sense because the, the regime gained absolutely nothing out of these both cases. But at the same time, they have attracted they have attracted international outrage in the case of in the case of Perez Savage. Also, the EU you know, imposed sanctions like real sanctions, uh, economic sanctions against Lukashenko's regime. During Roman, I remember Margarita Simonian, uh, the head of RT, the editor, she basically tweeted how Russia was jealous of what Lukashenko did and how they successfully hijacked a plane to arrest a dissident and basically that they should be doing the same thing. And I'm like, wow, the outrage from the rest of the community. And then you have Russia, you know, uh, the rest of the community was outraged, rightfully so, because you cannot let this kind of things happen. Exactly. I mean, this is for every dissident who is flying over a Russia-friendly country or even with a Belarus, if they're wanted by Belarus, they wanted by Russia, you know, like now what? We have to go to the airport and ask, you know, what country are you flying over so we can all avoid taking that flight and going through yeah, Europe? Exactly. Do you think Europe responded tough enough? Like, have you seen any weakening inside the regime? Well, in terms of sanctions, yes and no. Yes, because for the past year, following August election, even though the the scale of repression was unprecedented, even though like up to a dozen people was killed. Over 35,000 people have went through, through through prison terms. Over 600 of them are still in prison. The reaction from the West was literally, there was no reaction. I think in December, the EU agreed upon a sanction package, which included a few dozen people, like the freeze assets of their assets and their bank accounts in the EU, but they don't have any. So it's it's literally, it's a nice gesture, but it doesn't change anything. Yeah. I was especially outraged personally compared to what happened after 2006, 2010 election, because even though the scale of repression back then was much, much smaller, the reaction from the US, from the EU was uncomparable. It was so much stronger. Right. The EU the, 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 in 2007, the U.S. they've introduced, they imposed like severe economic sanctions that immediately overnight they made the Russian regime to release political prisoners and uh, start nego negotiating. Oh, there we in go. 2011, it was the same, but with the EU playing like the major role when the EU imposed sanctions against Lukashenko's money men. Some of them, they reside in Malta, in Cyprus. So it was extremely painful for them. Yeah. And immediately they've started 
releasing political prisoners yet again and started talks with the West, like, like trying to... To come to an agreement, something. Yeah, but this time for almost a year, the EU, the West, they did absolutely nothing. I think some support to international or to the independent media, to the opposition community was promised, but it's so untransparent. I have no idea whether anything has been transferred to anyone or not. Yeah. Like we personally, when, when, while I've been working at Nexa for a year, we didn't get any grants, any support. We've been living simply off of the ads that we sold to some Forex companies, things like that, because normal companies are afraid to advertise with extremists and terrorists as we are officially recognized in, in Belarus. Okay. Luckily, luckily, it's not the best word to use it, but yeah, that's the only one that suits. Luckily, after Roman Protasevich's arrest and the incident with the hijacking of the plane, the EU decided enough with enough and decided that it's high time to impose real sanctions, mm -hmm. which is economic sanctions, basically, because those freeze assets, those personal sanctions, this tra travel ban, it's uh, it doesn't change a thing because Belarusian officials don't travel to the EU anyways, and they don't have bank accounts in the EU in the first place. But those economic sanctions, initially, we were very positive about that, but it, and it ended up... The problem with the EU sanctions is that it excludes the main export product of Belarus to the EU, which amounts to some $3 billion in annual revenues, potash fertilizers. The EU officially says that it was left out intentionally so that the EU could increase pressure in the future in case Belarus regime will become even more, I don't know, wild. Like it's not wild enough already, right? So I can't say happy enough, but it's at least it's something because before before that there was absolutely nothing. And in terms of the US, the US hasn't reacted yet. I think back in early May, even before the situation with uh, Roman Protasevich, the US has reintroduced the economic sanctions against Belny Sehim, right. which is one of the largest consortium of the Russian petrochemical companies. But it's not like a new sanctions. It's just the one that's been... Uh, frozen that's been introduced in 2007 and that have been frozen for the past five or six or seven years. And it's not effective today as it was before, because today lots of companies like the manufacturer of potassium fertilizers, it, it's no longer a part of this consortium. So we'll see. You remember last month or even two months ago, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya visited the US and there have been promises that the US will do something, will increase pressure yeah. on Lukashenko's yeah. regime. We were all waiting for that. It was yeah. so nice seeing her with Biden. It was so and yes, nice. yes, it was a very nice picture. Having that kind of picture taken with Biden, is this a strong signal or is it just sort of playing lip service to the Belarusian community? I would say given the number of like of meetings Tikhanovska and her team had prior to the meeting with Biden and there were actual important meetings because meeting with Biden is just uh, it's like a protocol picture it's nice that he reaffirms his support for the country but it's not like uh, she doesn't discuss sanctions with Biden or the packages of support with Biden it's the relevant people in the home office how do you call it the state department yeah I think she met with everyone possible everyone involved in Eastern Europe in, Bel in, in Belarus I recently read reports, which honestly outraged me because it, it took me back to Soviet days of KGB of Belarus that they basically announced that they were going to begin kind of like a cleansing of opposition and journalists and terrorists, as they call them. And then following that, I've seen an increase in people's homes just being raided, them being kidnapped, taken out. No one can find them. Have you seen this increase inside? Well, yes, absolutely. You can say that Lukashenko 
is a man of his word in that regard, because after the EU promised sexual sanctions, he said very openly that, okay, in this case, uh, I will no longer, Belarus will no longer stop illegal migrants at the EU's border, will no longer stop the trafficking of drugs, of people at the EU's border. And he also promised to get rid of civil society altogether. And that's what we see. I actually, I lost count how many organizations were, were raided over the last months. It's hundreds. And he did it. Yeah. So yes, he's fulfilling, he's keeping his promises, he's destroying the civil society, he's burning it, he's eradicating it, burning it to the ground. So that's another sign of the embassization of Belarus, because in a few months' time, there will be no civil society altogether. Some of the stories coming out are heartbreaking. What can regular citizens do? What can governments do as a whole? Because people see these stories, they feel helpless. They want to do something. Yeah. Half of the stories coming out of Belarus, it's like your heart is breaking. You're like, my God, what can I do? Can I go save them? And also, what do you see happening with Lukashenko's regime? Do you see him surviving or do you see it just collapsing? Your first question, uh, what can the ordinary citizens and the politicians uh, in the West, what they can do? That's a very good question because even Belarusians who live abroad, unfortunately, there is not much we can do. The same goes with citizens of the US citizens, French, German, Polish citizens. The only thing I think people can do if, if, if people like support Belarusian cause, you know, the Belarusians fight, fight for, for freedom and democracy is to constantly remind the politicians that there is still a major unresolved issue on the doorstep of the EU and remind the decision makers of the atrocities that are taking place there on, on literally on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Because how politics work, Western politicians in countries with electoral democracies, in most cases, they do something if they brings them some political benefit. And uh, Belarus, so far, it's been on the international radars three times. The first time was when the election happened, the second time when uh, Roman Protasevich's incident happened, and the third time when there was a, the Olympic incident with the Belarusian athlete. And uh, if nothing is done during these three instances, during these three, three weeks, then everyone uh, just forgets about it. Uh, even if uh, like big promises are made by Western politicians, the moment the, this topic disappears from the headlines, they just say, ah, okay, let's do it some other time there is more more urgent issues going on exactly yeah god knows we know in ukraine what (laughs) what that feels like people forget there's a war there a need to constantly remind them that belarus still exists and still you know struggles for its freedom belarus in the middle of europe you have a dictator who decided to launch a war against his citizens i mean innocent people. people yeah I mean, and the world, we need to remind them, you know, these things are happening. You can't turn away from it. Exactly. Tadeusz, thank you. Thank Thank you you that you shared your time, your stories, everything, all the information that you've given us is really, really, really appreciated today so that our listeners become even more aware of what is happening. Thank you. We will not forget. We won't forget. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Hey everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com and find our links to our socials in the show notes. This is Season 1, Kremlin File, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monika Mata. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant Desimini, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Mycellus of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarno. Sound engineering by Mike Greenberg. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. 
subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. Go, go, go.